here at the EU public meeting. If I haven't met you before, my name is Rowan Kemp. I lead the staff team that works alongside the EU here at Sydney University. Great that you could join us here today. We're walking through, in the EU public meetings, we've been walking through the book in the Christian New Testament of 1 Corinthians, written by the Apostle Paul to a bunch of Christians in the Greek city of Corinth. We come today to two very tricky passages. They're tricky and they're super controversial. So I'm going to read them out to you without commentary, but it'd be really helpful if you could open it up in a Bible. So if you've got your own Bible here, it'd be great to pull it out at this point. The words are not going to be on the screen. I'd like you to actually look at it in front of you or maybe call it up on your phone, go to biblegateway.com or somewhere like that and call up these particular passages. The first passage I'm going to read is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 to 16. I'll give you a moment just to find that. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 to 16. And this is what we find there. The Apostle Paul writes, But I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Okay, and the second passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26 to 40. If that wasn't enough to think about and chew over, let's add this in. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 to 40. So Paul continues on a bit later. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at most three should speak one at a time and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. 
For they want to inquire, if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they themselves will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Hmm. It's a bit shocking, isn't it? Offensive even? Yet in the EU, we're followers of Jesus and we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God and, as the EU's doctrinal basis says, the supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. And Paul himself says here that what he's writing is from the Lord Jesus. So what are we meant to do as followers of the Lord Jesus with these two passages? Well, if it is indeed God's word, then it's pretty simple. We're to believe it and we're to live it. Except that I missed a little step. We're to rightly understand it and then believe it and then live it. And rightly understanding God's word is always crucial. Otherwise, you'll find yourself in a hot mess. Because you'll mishear what God is saying to us or you'll miss entirely what he's saying because you wrote it off as irrelevant or maybe too hard to understand. So let me tell you what happens if you don't put the effort into understanding difficult, tricky passages like these ones in God's word. One of three things will probably happen. Ignore, irate or inappropriate application. Let me explain what I mean. Option one, you just ignored tricky passages like this and you stick to the easy stuff. Someone actually who I was meeting with yesterday afternoon after they were at the public meeting yesterday said, well, yeah, every time I've read this, I have just gone, yeah, that's a bit tricky, that's a bit weird, and just move on, just ignore it. It's too hard to understand. Let me tell you, one day that will come back to bite you. Someone will challenge you one day with tricky passages like this one. They'll say, you say you're a Christian, do you really believe women should wear hats in church and have to remain silent? Do you really believe that? And you won't really know what to say. And it'll, what's more, it'll strike you as a very reasonable question. And you'll start to wonder why it is that you believe this book, the Bible. Option two, you get irate at passages like this without trying to understand it first. You get upset at what it seems to be saying without taking the time to check that you've rightly understood it. And so you, get, you reject the Bible, actually, as a trustworthy word from God. You actually start to stand over the top of God's word, using your opinion to decide what is from God and should be listened to and what is not in the Bible. That is theological liberalism. And that is a house with no foundations. Because the arbiter of what God might or might not say to you in the Bible turns out to be what you think he would say. That's how people end up denying the resurrection of Jesus. He couldn't possibly have risen from the dead. Or the divinity of Jesus. Option three, you inappropriately apply these passages without understanding them rightly first. Which means you may end up enforcing behaviours or beliefs on yourself or others that God himself is not actually requiring of you. 
And one day that will catch you out because at some point your false belief will clash with other parts of God's word and you'll be stuck in a bind. Is God's word telling me two contradictory things? If it is, then it's not reliable. And your seemingly secure edifice that you've built on just do what the Bible says, it starts to collapse because actually some of the bricks you've used to build that edifice are not actually from God. So I'd like to say these are all theoretical reactions to tricky passages, except that I know people in all three categories who sat here in EU public meetings like you are. The answer is that you need to think about challenging passages in the Bible, like these ones in 1 Corinthians 11 and 14. You need to seek to rightly understand them. Then we'll know what God wants us to believe and live as his people. And to rightly understand them, that means understanding their context, historically, culturally, within the letter that we find it, within the rest of the New Testament and the Bible as a whole, and understanding their content, understanding the flow of Paul's argument, looking at the words and phrases he uses, trying to get into the mind of the author. Now, to cut to the chase, right, rightly understood, I'm just going to tell you what I, my conclusions are about these passages, and then I'm going to try to justify them. But before I just tell you what my conclusions are, I'm just going to say I've made my best effort to try to understand these passages, and I've looked at them at many times over the years, and I've spoken on these passages before in an EU context. If you dig back through the EU's you know, treasure trove of talks on the EU podcast and look for 1 Corinthians 11 or 1 Corinthians 14, you can find talks I've given in the past on these passages where I deliberately went into great detail on particular words and phrases and follow the logic. And so if you want to do the deep dive, which I encourage you to do, have a look for those talks, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14. You'll find them on the podcast. Today I'm going to try and do both together and sort of do sort of a larger overview. But it's also worth saying that understanding these passages is tricky and evangelicals, people who love the Lord Jesus and want to submit to whatever his, his word rightly understood teaches, evangelicals differ on how to understand these passages and how to apply these passages. And so therefore it's important that you know that because the particular interpretation, the understanding, the conclusions that I've come to you might not agree with. And you know what? That's okay. These are tricky passages. And what we want to do is open the Bible together and submit to whatever it is found, rightly understood teachers. So let's have those conversations. And if you are really upset with some of my conclusions, that's okay. Because let's just let's look at the Bible together. And you know what? As we talk about that together, I'm going to learn from you. And hopefully, under God, you might learn from me too. So that's just a little bit of under. So to cut to the chase, rightly understood, what are my conclusions about these two tricky passages? It's this. I do not think these passages teach that women must wear hats in your church this coming weekend. I do not believe that rightly understood these passages teach that. I do not think these passages rightly understood teach that women can't speak publicly in your church gathering this weekend. But I do think God is saying that how we dress and behave in church matters as women and men. So let me try to show you how I got to those conclusions. First of all, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You want to open it up in front of you? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 3 to 16. The key issue for Paul is that how the Corinthians did their church meetings together 
could either bring glory and honour to God or the way they did their meeting might bring shame and dishonour to God. How you do your meeting matters. It's going to bring shame or glory to God. And one of the ways I can bring dishonour to God is by taking the focus away from him in the meeting and putting it on someone else or putting it even on myself. Now, within this, Paul draws attention to the interrelationships that exist within the church. Have a look at verse 3 of chapter 11. He says, I want you to realise the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Paul wants everyone to realise that, that they are not an unrelated free agent. No one is. Everyone in the church has a, quote, head. And how you behave, including what you wear, reflected on the head that you were related to. So in particular, the issue Paul highlights, probably because the Corinthians asked him about it, is that what you have on your head when you are praying or prophesying in the church gathering will bring shame or honour to the head that you are related to. So have a look there in verse 4. If men pray or prophesy with their head covered, that will dishonour their head, that is, Jesus. Whereas in verses 5 and 6, if a woman prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, that will dishonour her head, that is, the man or the men she is connected to. Now, it's a little bit tricky. It's one of the many complications in the, in the text that you can dig into if you look at the old, older talks on the podcast. The word man can also be translated as husband. And the word woman can also be translated as wife. So is Paul talking about wives and husbands in church or is he talking more generally about women and men? The only way you can work it out is by looking at the context. Well, he's at least talking about wives and husbands, but it wouldn't just be married women who were involved in this instruction. Single women would also be there in the congregation and they could also pray and prophesy. So it does seem to be that there's something about general women-men relationships within the church going on here. Well, why is it different for women and men if they pray or prophesy with something on their head? There's two different cultural factors, I think, behind Paul's instructions. One about the men and one about the women. So have a look in verse 7. We're told men are the image and glory of God. That's why they're not to cover up their head when they pray or prophesy in the gathering. Now, it helps to know something in cultural background. Corinth was in Greece, but it was a Roman city. And when Roman men took part in their pagan worship, their non-Christian worship, they always covered up their heads. Maybe it was a sign of humility before their gods, don't know. But Paul says that does not reflect an accurate or appropriate biblical understanding of who we are as human beings before God. Genesis 1 tells us that men and women together have been made in the image of God. So a way to distinguish Christian worship from pagan rituals was men to worship with their head uncovered, reflecting humanity's status as God's image bearers. Well, what about the women then? I mean, Genesis 1 is clear. Women are no less God's image bearers than men. Why then are women told here to pray with heads covered up? Again, understanding the cultural context will help us a lot. In Roman culture, for a woman to have an uncovered head in public singled, signalled sexual availability. 
A woman's hair was regarded as a potent part of her sexual allure, which is why you would cover it up in public. Hence, for a Christian sister to pray or prophesy in the gathering in front of everybody with an uncovered head is sending a message, maybe that they don't want to send. It's sending a message that's going to cause several problems. It's probably going to be distracting, sending the wrong message to the rest of the gathering. And in turn, that would bring dishonour to her and to the men to whom she is connected. So I'll give you a a crazy analogy, right? See if this works. Imagine you turn up to EU's public meeting next week and a brother or sister, a man or a woman, gets up to pray, uh, so gets up to read the Bible at the beginning of the meeting, and they get up to read the Bible wearing nothing but a swimming costume. They're displaying for you all the different parts of their body that you might consider sexually alluring. Would you find that distracting? I find it hard to believe anyone would you know, hand on the heart go, no, 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 that'd be fine. I wouldn't be distracted by that at all. Seriously, they get up, public meeting, standing here, Eastern Avenue lecture there in their swimming costume and reading the Bible, you're not distracted? How much attention are you actually paying to God's word at that point? Not much, really. What about the person's boyfriend or girlfriend who's sitting in the public meeting at that point? When others think, wow, that Bible reader, they're hot. How good does that boyfriend or girlfriend feel? That's right, they're with me. Do you see that do you see that the Bible reader is getting glory and the one who's related to them is getting glory? But isn't all the glory when we meet together as Christians meant to be on God? The one who we're worshipping and in whose name we meet together as his people? What about if the hot Bible reader had written on their swimmers, marry me. How distracting might that be for you? What about if it turns out they were actually already married and their spouse was sitting in the public meeting and it says, marry me? At that point, they've dishonoured their spouse and they've, Paul says, dishonoured God. Now, that is a crazy analogy, but if you start to get your head into that, it gives you some sense of what a woman with an uncovered head signalled in the culture in which Paul was writing. And in many cultures around the world today, indeed, for a woman to have an uncovered head still sends specific signals. But for most of us, if you see a man praying, prophesying, preaching with something on his head, Have you thought, my goodness, Rowan has a crazy, warped, pagan theological understanding of humanity's relationship to God? Now you've just thought he's wearing a beanie. What the heck's he doing? That's weird. That's all you thought today, wasn't it? That's all you thought. Did you you reach any theological conclusion from me wearing a beanie today? No. And you know why? Because clothes signal different things in our culture. And if you see a woman praying or prophesying in church with an uncovered head, do you think twice about it? No. The cultural signifiers have changed. It's quite hot to 
do that in a beanie. <laughs> just... uh, you can see this actually, that, that there's cultural things going on. At another point of this passage, have a look at verse 14 and 15, chapter 11. Paul says, Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. Paul is appealing to their common understanding, their cultural understanding, I would say, of just the way things are. Everyone knows that a bloke having long hair, that's a disgrace. That's what he's saying. Well, is it? It was then. Is it now? Here is an embarrassing photo. Oh, maybe. Maybe the Lord's intervening. It's not going to happen. Don't do it. Don't do it, he says. Is it a disgrace for a man to have long hair? You might say, well, Rowan, you've clearly got a vested interest in that question, um, or used to. Um, look, I, I, looking at it, I agree that it is uh, unruly. I agree that it's unsightly even. And yes, if you asked my wife, now wife Jenny, who knew me at the time, yes, it was maybe even a bit gross. Um, but is long hair on men a disgrace, something that is against nature? I'd suggest not. I think Paul is speaking into his own culture about his own culture. And the universal point he's actually making, though, that does apply is that there, are, there is a difference between the sexes. And what is appropriate for one might not be appropriate within the culture for the other. Which was his point about having your head covered when praying or prophesying. He's saying in, in, in his context, it is right for men to pray with uncovered heads and it's right for women in that context to pray with covered heads. So, what does this passage have to say to us today? As I tried to show with that crazy hot Bible reader example, Similar dynamics can appear in our gatherings as well. The key principle is that we want to bring honour and glory to God in our meetings together, not glory to one another. We want to bring glory to God. And bringing glory to God can be affected by us bringing shame or inappropriately focusing on those we are related to within the gathering and the way we participate in the gathering. So that's 1 Corinthians 11. What about 1 Corinthians 14, which I'll deal with more quickly? Now, next week, we're actually going to return to 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14 and look in, at the issue of spiritual gifts, especially speaking in tongues and prophecy. But for today, we're just jumping into the last part of the chapter that I read earlier from verse 26. Again, the issue is about how the Corinthians are doing church together. It seems to have been quite chaotic when they met together, with everyone wanting to speak at once and people not taking turns. 
Paul's overall instruction, if you've got 1 Corinthians 14 there, if you look to the very last verse, verse 40, is that corporate worship should be done in a fitting and orderly way. He wants them to bring some order to their chaos. He says, and in doing that, you'll actually reflect the God who you're worshipping. If you look at verse 33, he says, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. But the practical point of bringing order to their gathering was so that the gathering could do what it was meant to do. When Christians gather together, it's meant to build people up in their faith in the Lord Jesus, to grow them in their understanding of him and to be an encouragement to one another to keep on following him. But if they're all speaking over the top of each other, that was never going to happen. You can see this in verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or interpretation? And then notice Paul's concern and his, and his application. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. That's Paul's intent. What strengthens or edifies the church is the priority, not me or you just using whatever gifts God might have given us and using it because we want to. comes out again in verse 31. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. That's why Paul keeps reiterating that they should speak one at a time because apparently they were speaking over the top of each other. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two at the most, three should speak one at a time. Verse 30, when someone is prophesying and if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should be silent rather than both trying to speak at once. And the same motivation, I'm going to suggest, is probably the reason why Paul says in verse 34 that the women should be silent in the church. It's clear in verse 35 that the women in the congregation are wanting to learn, which is a great thing. They want to be instructed and understand what is being talked about. But rather than adding to the chaos by starting to ask those around them while the person is speaking, what's he, what's he talking about? What's, what's she talking about? I don't understand what they're talking about. Rather than talk, Paul says it's a, more appropriate to ask your husbands at home. Now, Paul clearly can't be saying women should never talk in the gathering because we've just looked at chapter 11 where it's clear that women are praying and prophesying in the gathering along with men and that the rest of men and women would listen. So it's not an absolute silence that Paul is imposing upon them. It's a silence, I take it, whilst others are speaking. And possibly they were also crossing culturally acceptable boundaries of whom they asked questions of. In first century culture, it was regarded as highly questionable if you as a woman went to speak to a man who was not from your family. That was regarded as dodgy behaviour. So if the women were quizzing other men in the gathering, that potentially could be another reason why Paul might say in verse 35, if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak like that in the church. The Corinthian church was chaotic. Everyone was trying to dominate. Everyone wanted to use their gifts. People were speaking in tongues, prophets speaking over the top of each other, women quizzing those around them about the meaning of what was being said. Paul says this is not glorifying to God. He's a God of peace and wants the gathering to build people up. So he asks various people to restrain themselves, to be silent at points, to take turns, to pursue proper seemly channels for getting their questions answered. So how does that work out for us? Well, again, our culture is really different. We can talk to each other, women and men together, without that bringing any disrespect. 
Women in particular are not obliged to only speak to male family members for fear of bringing themselves or others into disrepute. Not, now, interestingly, that's what our culture is like, but not all cultures are like that. And so in different cultural settings, you need to exercise sensitivity about to whom you speak and how. But the principles of Paul's instruction remain. When we gather together as God's people, everything must be done in a fitting and orderly way so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. We take turns. We don't talk over the top of each other. We show restraint. And just being a little, just a little thought bubble here from me, if anything, I wonder if our gatherings have shifted too far maybe the other way, that there's not enough participation from everybody in the body, women and men together, using our gifts to build the body of Christ in love. It might be that we've become too structured We've restricted the use of gifts such as tongues and interpretation and prophecy, maybe even effectively forbidding them, which is the very thing Paul says in verse 39, you must not do, don't forbid these things. Because the picture in these two chapters is of women and men both using the gifts God gives to strengthen, to encourage, to to grow God's people, even as we do it in ways that reflect our differences as sisters and brothers in Christ but more of that next week. Thanks for listening to today's talk. The Evangelical Union, or EU, is a student club on campus at Sydney University that seeks to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. To join us or to find out more, please visit sydneyunieu.org.